Hello and welcome to the Dallas Christian College Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Spees, the Director of Advancement here at DCC, and we want to thank you for joining us as we continue in our series of podcasts that focus on current topics and events that are shaping our society, the world of education, and the local church. In this episode, we are preparing for DCC's in-person homecoming celebration in mid-October by looking at historical events that impacted the founding of Dallas Christian College in 1950, specifically Restoration Movement history. And there probably is no one better equipped to do that than the chair of DCC's Arts and Science Department and Professor of History, Dr. Mark Fish. Dr. Fish, we're glad to have you here today. Thank you, Scott. So Dr. Fish has been on staff at DCC since the year 2000, and he served in a variety of capacities, including overseeing the Evening Quest degree completion program years ago. He also had a stint as director of admissions. Uh, He is married to his wife, Sheila. They've been married 44 years. They have three children, two of which are in full-time ministry, and they have five grandkids. Uh, Dr. Fish also wanted to make sure that we knew he was still filling in at DeSoto Christian Church now for 20 years. <laughs> quite, a, quite an interim period there. So, But helping to facilitate today's discussion is the voice of the DCC Leadership Podcast, Mr. Mark Worley. So Mark, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you kick off our episode with Dr. Fish. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I, I'm really looking forward to this because, I, uh, Mark, I think there's a lot of people who misunderstand what the restoration movement is about and why it even came into existence. Uh, it, it, it almost comes across like as an exclusive group rather than what it is, inclusive, a beautiful movement of God's people. So I'll tell you what, let's go back to the beginning. Why and what does restoration movement mean? Great questions, Mark. And I thank you for saying inclusive. It, that was what it was meant to be. Yeah. It was meant to be a movement, not another denomination. Right. It was about unity in a lot of ways. Uh, again, as a historian, I have to think about the context, don't I? So why then so many people were interested in it is very important. It was a point in which America was blossoming as a country, and people were coming from Europe where you had to be in a certain church. But they got here and they said, wait a minute, there's no law that says I have to belong to a denomination. So a number of people, including some of those who started this movement, said, why are we fighting each other? Let's just be Christians. Let's just use the New Testament and get started with that. So that's kind of the initial impetus, and we had the freedom of religion here, so it started in a lot of places. Yeah, you know, all the way back in the book of Acts, they didn't have the first Christian, second Christian, third Christian, first Baptist, second Baptist, first Church of Christ, you know, first Presbyterian. They didn't have all that. They had one church. And uh, I I think the name Restoration Movement is saying, let's restore that, that idea of unity of all believers. So how how did they do that coming from different denominations? How did they work to, to make and help that to happen? Great questions again. Um, part of it is, again, they, well, Thomas Campbell would write something uh, called the Declaration of Address. And interestingly enough, he gives the exigence, the problem at the end. And it, it's a story about an Indian tribe group who basically said, you guys fight each other. If you get on the same page, we would listen. And Thomas said, 
that makes sense. He said, we're fighting each other. We shouldn't do that. So he said, schisms, divisions, that's hurting evangelism. So honestly, evangelism was a key component for them. He determined that we needed unity, and the only way to get it was to drop the opinions and human-made structures and only require what we could find in the New Testament. Yeah, it, and I, I think, you know, we, we've had just literally hundreds of years of division and some to the point of people dying and being burned at the stake because they believe something slightly different than somebody else. So, so this is a pretty uh, unique movement in saying, hey, uh, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. I do, too. So let's let's talk. And so a couple of the first leaders, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, Alexander Thomas Campbell. Uh, tell us a little bit about these guys and how they got a, to be a part of this. Sure. And, and, and the really wonderful thing is because America was opening up, we have about five different movements that will mostly congeal together. And, and so let me kind of back up slightly to one of the earlier ones. Up in New England, yes, there were good things in New England happening. A guy out of Vermont named Elias Smith, he, he ran into Abner Jones. Those two guys get together, and they're frustrated with denominational additions, humans controlling things. And so they're already inching their way to names like, why don't we just be Christians? Why don't we work together? So even in Boston, Massachusetts, we had churches going. Mm. Down in the Virginias and North Carolina, again, a couple of guys, this time out the other ones were out of Baptist churches. These were out of Methodist churches. And um, the shortened version is uh, Francis Asbury was trying to get a grip on the Methodist church, and he was controlling things. James O'Kelly and Rice Haggard said, no, let's get back to the New Testament. They called themselves not regular Methodist, but Republican Methodist after the New Republic. Well, eventually say, no, that's not good enough. We need to be Christians only. By the way, they will all come together and inform a guy named Barton Stone, and they'll tell him, why don't we just be Christians? He goes, I like that. So he even mentions, he includes it. Who's Barton? Warren Stone. Barton grew up as a Presbyterian minister, but he already said, I can only agree to the denomination insofar as it agrees with the New Testament. So that was pretty brave. So they sent him out to the wilds of Kentucky, where he had two churches. And now this is, this is the mid uh, to late 1800s. Early. 18, early. Okay. Yeah, early 1801, in fact. Okay, well, that's early. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. Right this there. is super early. <laughs> uh, although the other guys are late 17s, he's early. He's about 1801. Yeah, good point. And, and the, the short version there is, and, and there's so much, if you're listening, I hope you can explore more, but the Cane Ridge Church and the Concord Churches were in a place called Bourbon County, Kentucky. Bourbon was invented by a Baptist minister, of all things, <laughs> and is a dry county. Christian County was the wet one, which I love Kentucky, but they had a revival there. And in, in that revival, we call it the Second Great Awakening. Kentucky had about 25,000 people. Well, 25,000 showed up in August, the first week of August, 1801. And um, that really kicked it off. And many people don't even call it Restoration Movement anymore. They use Stone slash Campbell Movement partly because Stone was so influential and it rolled out of that huge revival. Yeah, and see, uh, now some people would say, well, denominations came out of the Restoration Movement, but uh, really, uh, 
you know, the, the, the movement was, again, inclusive rather than exclusive, saying, hey, uh, let, let's call ourselves Christians and uh, uh, veer away from labels that would divide us, right? Exactly. And in fact, that revival woke up not only Barton Stone, but a number of others. Uh, and, and this may be a little piece that some who've studied the restoration movement may not know. The revival doesn't start at Cane Ridge. It starts in Ohio at a place called Cabin Creek. It was basically to get communion, the Presbyterian Church, of which Stone was a part, you had to get examined. So we would ask you your doctrine. I'd ask your neighbors if they'd ever seen you do something terrible like dance or curse or beat your wife. And then if you hadn't, you could take communion. Well, they went to examine the church at Cabin Creek, and people knew somebody was showing up to preach, so 600 showed up. Each week for six weeks, that got bigger and bigger. The week before was at a place called Indian Creek in Cynthiana, Kentucky, which is still operating, by the way. Yeah. 10,000 showed up for that one. So the next week, just a county over, when they showed up, it got to be 25,000. And what made the difference inclusively was the Presbyterians were preaching, they ran out of voice and ability to speak to everyone without amplification. Baptists stood up, Methodists stood up. There were a thousand African Americans there, 500 free, about 500 slaves. They preached. And guess what? They said, people are listening. Mm. People are, are sharing the word and they learn that I don't just have to be a Presbyterian. People are coming to know God. And at first it bothered Barton, but then he stopped and he and the others said, wait a minute, this is God. And an important part of the restoration movement that Stone adds is an emotionalism. And one of the reasons we go forward, unlike a lot of groups, Campbell later will add the rational section, but Stone keeps this emotive piece. Together, it made a better movement that reached more people. And when you talk about emotional response, what do you what do you mean by that? Wow, they had everything going. I mean, they were preaching, and people would sometimes squeal. Some people got to barking up trees. Some ran and said, "I'm in the spirit." Everything you could imagine happened. In fact, the week before at Indian Creek, uh, no, but nothing was happening. They thought it was boring, and so a young boy <laughs> dropped a handkerchief. And as he did, he said, "As the handkerchief drops." So your soul will drop into hell if you don't accept Christ. A woman squealed, and off it went. And again, uh, Presbyterians kept trying to quieten it down, but it wouldn't quieten down. They said, maybe there's something going on here. <laughs> so so does, that, does that have a lot to do with the, like the Assemblies of God or the Pentecostal Church today? Or? Yeah, later on, but that doesn't happen for 100 years later in the Azusa Street movement. Right. And you're right. People said, I feel straitjacketed, and people just let out a motion that had been hiding for maybe many, many years. Yeah, and so, uh, I mean, there, there were some cult people at this place as well. I remember yes. uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. a, a very famous guy said, uh, everybody was saying, low here, low there. And, he said, no, I've got the right answer. A guy named Joseph Smith. Yeah, now Joseph doesn't come to that revival, but you know who does? The Shakers up in New England hear about it. Oh, that's right. They send yeah. people down. Two of the guys that step away initially, knowing there's a problem, they'll go with them, particularly Richard Makenmar. And he goes and becomes one of the greatest evangelists the Shakers would ever have. So, so out of this movement, I mean, there, as I see it, there's like three groups. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, uh, I don't know, I would consider them m much more conservative, Church of Christ Acapella. 
And then you've got those that are on the more other side, which would be the Disciples of Christ, which be, actually became a denomination. And then in the middle of these is uh, independent Christian churches. Now, talk a little bit about that sure. that transformation out of the 1800s. Well, uh First of all, in all groups, over time, you get a conservative, a middle, and, and we were calling ourselves a unity movement. So it, it's all sad to all of us, but over that time, the hermeneutic that the leaders fought in, for, when I say not with each other, but they really knew what they were doing, the second and third level usually turn your thinking into slogans such as where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. Made a lot of sense if you're trying to teach it to the third or fourth generation. Problem is, that's what began to create a problem. So by 1904, five, six, right in there, the conservative group said, too many people are adding things that they saw as human innovations. This group will be primarily known as the Church of Christ, non-instrumental, although in Texas, that's not why the church is split in Dallas-Fort Worth. They didn't split over entrance. They split over missions. Right. They believed that each church should supply all the money for a missionary from the church. Instruments came later. In fact, the very first church ever formed in Fort Worth was a Christian church. It becomes disciples. And one of the big universities, Texas Christian University, was started as a Church of Christ school in Thorpe Springs by two boys, Addison and Randolph. Adran College became Texas Christian University. And then they hired music people, and they said, can we have an instrument? And they said, well, as long as it's not in worship. So over time, Texas Christian University now is Bright Divinity School, and they're disciples. Yep. Now, now, disciples and Christian independence begin breaking in 1925. It's not official till the 60s. But in 25, we start the North American Christian Convention because, again, people are concerned we're looking like a denomination, and we didn't want to be that. We want to be a unity movement, not a separate. So in the 60s, the disciples say, let's do self-study. So they officially, in the 60s, decide to become a denomination. You know, it's it's interesting, uh, Mark. In, in, uh, in my graduate studies, you know, I did uh, uh, socioeconomic disparity and uh one of the one of the things that I really studied was how Paul tried to bring the churches and the people to unity, and he just couldn't do it. I mean that that was a sad, uh, you know that the the thesis was, hey, how did he do it? Well, not effectively, you know. He, but but in every church, you know, if you read through his letters, he's constantly talking about unity. And that's so difficult, even in this day and time, to bring about that unity. It sure is. In fact, uh, some have studied, and even within the Church of Christ, there are 21 separate groupings within the Church of Christ. Nobody wanted that direction. So um, one of the things, um, and in fact, I was sharing it with uh, uh, Brother Scott Spees over here the other day, every reform or movement throughout history has needed itself to be reformed within 20 to 30 years. If you don't, you feel like the book of Judges. I forget God's hand, and I have to go back to prayer, and God has to intervene again. So if we're wise, we restudy ourselves. We admit we don't know everything. We need one another. We need to listen to other people. We need help. We need the help of God, because we're always trying to get it back to what God calls us to be. Uh -huh. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, the the Wesley brothers would go, hey, what (laughs) happened? You know, what happened to the Holy Club? What happened here? Or Martin Luther would go, hey, what? something went wrong here you know yes. <laughs> uh that's not me you know that's not what i did yeah there's uh, calvin and president you know there's so many different uh people who right. yeah were a part of that i think it's interesting we're going to talk about the history of dallas christian college at another uh podcast here soon but uh i think it's interesting that that uh a few years ago somebody came here uh who was familiar with the restoration movement background and said wow i I see the restoration movement happening here at Dallas Christian College. And he's right. He was right. I mean, you got people from every different denominational background, and yet they come here to study the Word of God. And we don't teach them how to think or what to, or we don't teach them what to think. We teach them how to think, how to study for themselves. I know I teach uh, the book of Acts, and, and they're just like, okay, so what do you think? And I'm like, no. That's that's not what's important here. What's important here is you, you take a look at all the different ideas and the different scriptures and you study it for yourself. And it's interesting that uh, uh, something that goes all the way back to the 1800s, uh, we still adhere to because the Restoration Movement has taken some really weird turns and has been known somewhat as legalistic or narrow minded. And that's. That's exactly the opposite of what we read about in the Restoration Movement. Oh, absolutely, Mark. And, and I think it's very important. One of the reasons I was blessed to grow up in a Christian family, uh, my dad was a scientist. But by the way, we ordained him into the ministry because Christian church kind of likes that. When he went to Saudi Arabia doing cancer research for the king, he started 15 underground churches. This is the kind of thing that we love and also we have shifted over time revivals aren't in most churches anymore but as a young man some of the older ministers would go on what they call protracted meetings out to the west they might be gone six months holding revival meetings baptizing people right out all over and in texas uh, one of the things i want to say it's kind of it's very important is the earliest minister we know that came to texas itself was a guy named Colin McKinney, for which the county is named, and the county courthouse, and he started a Christian college north of McKinney that got up to 350 people in the mid-1800s. Wow. It's not there now. Nope. But you know what? Our colleges come and go, but we move with the times so that in our history, we've had three United States presidents. Many people think separation of church and state, right? No. We had an ordained minister who baptized and preached and was a president in the United States, James Garfield. I was going to say Garfield, yeah. yeah. And also, of course, Reagan and, and uh, Johnson. But Reagan, when they asked him, well, Jimmy Carter was born again, were you? He said, yes. They said, when? He said, when I was baptized into Jesus Christ. Greatest thing Ronald Reagan ever said. Wow. Wow. Thank you, brother. He went to one of our <laughs> schools, Eureka. Yeah. 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 Well, man, this, this is really interesting. Uh, so, so... The restoration movement comes to Texas. I, I last Sunday I teached I, I preached at uh, First Christian Church in Anna, Texas, and they said they're the oldest uh, Christian church in Texas. I don't know if that's true or not, but I uh, but I thought it was pretty interesting. And over in Louisiana, they've got a uh, I, one of the churches there at a small town has a pulpit that they said Alexander Campbell preached at. So it's kind of interesting how the restoration movement moved all the way from uh, Kentucky 
and and Ohio in that area uh, down to the south. It sure did. In fact, when Colin McKinney came, he was escorted by Davy Crockett. That's right. They came together, although he was smart and stopped <laughs> where we call Collin County. Crockett went on to a place called the Alamo. Yeah, not so, not so well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we a lot of people were coming. And, and by the way, I should say there are two churches from the original seven of the Restoration Movement still meeting. One is in Harrodsburg, Kentucky, and the other one is the Indian Creek Church. So when I preached there, we still had a large stoop where you would bring up the carriages and the young men would help the ladies out of the carriage. And then like a, uh, a service, parking cars, they would park the horse and carriage and tie it to a tree and then uh, come on into the worship service. You know, there's a, there's a lot of different uh, aspects of, uh, you know, there, there the questions concerning baptism or communion or women. And uh, I, I know you were talking to me uh, uh, previously about uh, the role of women in the uh, restoration movement. And I thought that was pretty interesting as well. Well, yeah, Mark. In fact, I got interested growing up in the Christian church. Women prepared communion, helped you for baptism, but I didn't see a lot. So when I was in uh, my undergraduate school at Johnson, uh, I did a paper on deaconesses because I read about this Phoebe girl. I couldn't understand that. So my master's uh, thesis for uh, my MDiv was on deaconesses in the New Testament through history and the Restoration Movement. We had them. They were reported in the Christian Standard, everything, until we became conservative post-World War II. In the 50s, people got scared about calling the women who did service for the church a deaconess, which is funny. I, probably because we got more and more deacons coming out of the Baptist church who were leaders, and a lot of people didn't want the women voting in the board meetings, so they got rid of deaconesses. But we did have the earliest we know of a woman being ordained is about 1810 in New England. Then in Kansas, we begin to get them in the 1940s. I know Dr. Buford Bryant uh, looked at that, and he said, well, they can't do it. Then he said, but they're preaching from the Bible, and people are coming, and now I'm not sure what's wrong with this. And so <laughs> there began to be a new flow of folks to the point that our, well, we'll get to it, but... Dallas Christian College, very early on in the first classes, included women here at DCC. Not every one of our schools did that. They had to go through a transition, but Dallas actually did it. In fact, one of the first graduates of Dallas Christian College was a woman. That's right. And we'll talk more about that. Boy, well, there's, a, there's a little bit of a cliffhanger about uh, <laughs> the history of DCC. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, yeah, thanks, Mark. I mean, there's so much of a rich history nice. in the Restoration Movement in trying to restore that that early church, and yep. and that's what's I just absolutely love the Book of Acts and and teaching the Book of Acts uh, to a diverse group of students that have so much fun discussing you the know, Bible, the Bible, and the beginnings of the church. So it's a pretty cool thing. So That's, Yeah, this has been great. And just to, to let you know, next week's podcast is going to focus on the history of Dallas Christian College and how that relates to what we've been talking today about the Restoration Movement. So we'll have Dr. Fish back for that and encourage you to check that out. I, I was struck by your comment about the idea that every 20, 30, 40 years, an organization, a movement needs to realign or it's influenced by the culture around it and f false teachings, 
compromises start to enter in. Uh, I immediately thought of the, the 2015 book Mission Drift by Peter Greer and Chris Horse. The, speaking of that, and then even you go back to the early church councils. As early as the, the second, third, fourth centuries, the church was still having to realign, clarify what it actually believed. You had the, the council at Constantinople, Nicaea, Ephesus. Creeds came out of that all with the goal of we need to remind people what really is most important and so thank you for for bringing that to light and sharing today if you want to learn more about dallas christian college specifically uh, about our degree programs that would allow you to study with a dr fish as well as some available scholarships you can check us out at www.dallas.edu We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Podcast and remind you that you can check out any of our episodes on a lot of different podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. But for now, we're going to leave you and we'll continue this discussion next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Dallas Christian College Leadership Podcast.